So Tian Tian, as I was saying. Yes, Dan? That was my joke about the fact that we've been away from podcasting for over a month. Um. <laughs> Welcome to the Watching Film Podcast. <laughs> you get it? Hi, Patrick. Hi, hi Zach. Hi, who are, uh, who are the people who like and, we haven't shouted out yet? Um, Joe, our friend. Oh our yeah, Jamora. Hi, hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. Oh, who's that? What, what's that voice? <laughs> From out of nowhere, the silky tones of Anna Gadula, who is joining us today. Welcome, Hello. Anna. Hello. Hi, Anna. Hi. Thanks for having Anna. me. Yeah, thank you for coming to talk about Minari with us. Of course. I am honored to be on the show uh, before I got my official shout out. So, yes. hello. I was telling Anna, like, what better shout out than shouting yourself out on the platform <laughs> from which you want to shout out? Hey. It's also really funny because, like, you know, we were like ushering Anna into this episode and like explaining how we do the setup and stuff and it felt very much like oh yeah me and tt are the savvy old heads in the podcast world when we're just like a bunch of dodos who've done like five of these <laughs> well this is going to be our, our sixth one and i don't know when we started this in mm -hmm. december if we could have you know like imagined where we would be at the time that we're recording a sixth one but here we are it's april 9th Mm -hmm. um, we are now 13 months into lockdown. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah. yeah, so I think, you know, Minari, I remember being a film that I had been quite excited to um, see when I, I think I first heard word of this in like late summer, early fall of last year. And then it just kept getting like pushed back and pushed back further. Um, mm. Eventually, you know, I watched it on my laptop. I, I think that that's pretty much how we all ended up seeing this movie um, because the theaters with just a few exceptions are still closed in Chicago um, and under pretty strong distancing procedures. So yeah, this is sort of like a movie that I feel like I wonder if this is true for both of you too. I feel like I had heard so much about and anticipated so much before seeing, and there's always sort of like a slate of Oscar baby films that sort of like end up in that market. And Minari on the one hand, I think is surprising as a film that did that. And then also sort of unsurprising in the ways that it followed the formula of movies that, that tend to get that kind of, um, aura attached to them, but I'm kind of curious what sort of like the story is for both of you also in terms of like what you were anticipating before this movie and how you came to actually see it. Well, Anna, I think you were the, probably the first of the three of us to see the movie, right? Mm -hmm. So what was the, the arc of like, yeah, the, what you were kind of thinking, expecting before it, and then sort of in yeah. it and then now after give uh, us the whole story i had i actually hadn't heard of minari until the golden globes were uh announced and um and being like debated about um why is a film that is by an american production company set in arkansas 
in the foreign language um, uh, category. And so I thought that was interesting. And that's kind of what first I even heard of the name. And then... Um, it yeah, should really be like the is reading required category or like <laughs> is reading not required category. I also think it's funny because it's like this, the the Golden Globes are run by the foreign press. Ah, yeah. What does and that mean? Like, I, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, the word foreign has always had like kind of a strange um, relation to Hollywood. I mean, I think both in terms of like the fact that Hollywood does draw so many different performing artists, um, filmmakers from all over the world, honestly, but also that there's like a very, normally when we think of foreign, we mean non-English speaking is very clear in the way that those categories are divvied out. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, British movies, so something like Shakespeare in Love or whatever, um, The English Patient, those movies are, you know, like, not necessarily U.S. productions, but they don't fall into the foreign language the foreign language category. And the only reason is because we think of, like Dan was saying, things that you have to read, things that are not in the English language strictly as foreign. Mm, that's so so weird. <laughs> well, maybe we should start by even just sort of, um, you know, providing a little bit of background about. Um, the movie and about what sort of like the main framework, the bones of this story are. So yeah, Minari is a film that came out last year. Um, please feel free either of you to jump in um, as I get through this, but I'll just start by saying it's directed by the filmmaker Lee Isaac Chung, who also um, wrote the screenplay and who was very who has been, I think, like very frank in the marketing of the movie that it's meant to be an autobiographical story or at least a semi-autobiographical story about his right. own experience, mm -hmm. um, his family growing up in the heartland of America. Um, I'm looking at the press release for the movie and what the production studio gives as sort of a synopsis is that they write, this is Minari is a tender and sweeping story about what roots us following a Korean American family that moves to a tiny Arkansas farm in search of their own American dream. The family home changes completely with the arrival of their sly, foul-mouthed, but incredibly loving grandmother. And that grandmother is played by the only Korean-Korean um, actor in the film, who I think like actually is sort of like the biggest callback that we have um, to, you know, like an actual Korean viewing public mm. for this movie. Amidst the instability and challenges of this new life in the rugged Ozarks, Minari shows the undeniable resilience of family and what really makes a home. Is there anything that either of you would like to add to that um, studio synopsis? Or anything that you're surprised about what is left out from that synopsis? I'm surprised at how central the grandmother is to the synopsis. Um, and I think I also had this surprise as I was watching the film um, because a lot of the press, you know, a lot of the media attention was on the grandmother and the grandson. Um, but uh, the film struck me as a father-son film, like very, yeah. I don't know, angels and, or um, 
Angels in the Outfield. Angels in the Outfield. <laughs> <laughs> Is that set in Arkansas too? I don't know, but it it's set in the heartland, you know? Yeah. So it mm. has that like, uh, yeah, that very paternalistic tone almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, as I was watching the film, I was really surprised as to how central it, the father-son relationship actually was and not so much the relationships with the, the women of the film. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, um, that's something, Anna, that also stuck out to me in this movie. And I feel like actually the, the movie tries to thematize it pretty strongly and even like the, the portrait of Asian immigrant labor that we get. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the father and mother um, both work basically their job is sexing baby chickens figuring mm-hmm. out um, which is like the female chickens from the male chicks so that because you know obviously the female chicks are more valuable in terms of being able to lay eggs um, mm-hmm. having you know like eventually larger breasts that can be eaten and you know so we're kind of like introduced very early on to this idea in the movie right of like an entire gender actually being useless yeah. And it's, or it's value, I guess, like just not being seen by humans. Um, mm. And I thought that that was kind of interesting because that's such a reversal of what we maybe expect from this movie. And I think that this movie actually plays around with that a little bit. Like there's this joke that the father makes explaining his job to the son and saying, you know, like the boy chickens are, are useless, David. So you and I, we have to try to be useful so that we're not, you know, the joke is mm. that we're not also just thrown away. Mm-hmm. But actually the evidence in the movie and the, the evidence I think like that we're used to in stories of Asian culture um, and in this very family that we see on screen is that the sister and the mother are the less developed characters. Oh yeah. And that the women are not the ones who get to have a childhood or get to have sort of like um, their potential fulfilled is sort of yeah. like the feeling of the film. and. Yeah, I was curious, Dan, if if that also stood out to you or what you thought about the gender dynamics that we are given in this portrayal of a family. And it's a portrait of a family that's very like, very sort of like the, um, both I think like the American and the sort of like Asian ideal of like the complete matching set. So there's mother, father, um, older sister, younger brother. Yeah, like I think one thing that is, sort of resonated with me in this conversation was this question of the film not being able to settle on a point of view. Mm. Um, Like, especially in the early stretches, like before the grandmother comes in, I felt like almost like whip point of view whiplash sometimes where you would be like right in the middle of a parental argument. And I'm thinking back to um, what you said, Tantiana, about Pixar, which was the idea that in Pixar, like, um, like for example, in Toy Story, right? That the world of the toys and the way that they kind of keep their business hidden from the child sort of consciously to protect the child is sort of a metaphor for what the parents do. Um, and yeah, like, the I child think, has like a whole world held up for them without realizing that the world is yeah. being all this right. labor is done to do that, yeah. Yeah, and then the sort of like the autobiograph, the overt autobiographical framing of Minari also sort of confuses this because then if it is like, if this is sort of, if the like the little boy is sort of the author's point of view, 
how does he have access to all of these like arguments between the parents, right? But then like the camera will swerve or cut and then it'll like see the parents from the kid's perspective. And then you have like stuff with the grandmother. So you have all of these different like places inside the family unit that like could be the place of like where the, the central themes are carried. But then you have like the family's relationship to the environment, right? And so mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I, I, was, I felt a little bit like there, it was juggling a lot of like mushrooms in a mushroom soup or something, you know? <laughs> um, the other thing that you're saying about the, the mother and the daughter, it made me think of, I think something that you were saying the other day, actually, Tian Tian, which was this idea that like, in a kind of like Spiller's genealogical sense, there is mm. no such thing as a father-daughter relationship in yeah. Asian families. Yeah. Like we have a model of like a mother-daughter relationship. We have a model of like a father-son. We have a model of a mother-son, mm -hmm. but there's a kind of like absent place in the family gender mapping, which is like the father-daughter. And I- The only, yeah. the only um, filmmaker who I feel like tells those stories often, you know, in like a East Asian context is um, Ozu. So the filmmaker Yasujiro Ozu is really the only one. And it's always like around this issue of like the problem of marriage and like, mm -hmm. when should the daughter marry? Is it like, you don't want to do it too early because that's a sad moment when you're not ready to let your daughter go yet, but you don't want to wait too long when sort of like her potential will dry up of suitors. Um, so, you know, like I, even in Ozu films, I was just thinking how the father-daughter relationship is only articulated at this moment of like imminent loss and around like this question of loss because as a filmmaker working, you know, from the forties through the seventies, I guess, um, that's like a moment where marriage is sort of like a, a final thing where it's not just about like entering someone else's family. It's really about leaving your own family. Is the movie Farewell, does that have a father-daughter relationship? I don't remember. I, don't I remember. think, the, I mean, I, there is, you're right, but I feel like the... Is it the mother's mother? The mother one, sick? I just feel like is so much stronger. Yeah. And also okay. the grandmother, mother, yeah. daughter triad, which yeah, is yeah, a very yeah. familiar one. I will say that like, as an eldest daughter of an immigrant family from Asia. I, I didn't feel that the, well, one, definitely the eldest daughter, um, her character was not flushed out because I was like, I want to identify with you, but I can't even remember your name right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I was very biased then because I was like, oh, I wish that there was more conflict because there's definitely conflict between the eldest daughter and the mother. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and, and speaking happening. of which, Anna, can you can you give us a little bit more background about how you identify? Culturally oh, yeah. in so Dan and I, you know, are both Chinese American, or Dan is Chinese Canadian. Wait, are we outing Anna on this podcast? I feel well, like that's I a very it, aggressive. I, move. I will. I think I, will. It, I think it gives a little <laughs> bit of context that's useful to know where she's coming from. That's true. So this Anna's a, a white eldest daughter, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and please, please interpret all of her opinions about the movie through that lens. Thank you. <laughs> oh, no, I am not. Uh, I am not white. Um, I was born in the Philippines. 
And then we moved to the States in 97. Um, my mother is actually the one who was our pathway to the States. She's a computer programmer. And so in the years leading up to the Y2K, there was a huge brain drain of oh, yeah. Asia, not just East Asia, but Southeast Asia and South Asia. Um, so a huge brain drain of computer programmers to the States in preparation for Y2K. <laughs> um, and she says this to me, so I'm not, you know, take it with a grain of salt. It's a good myth. It's a good legend, nevertheless, that the Y2K brought us here. Um, and so, yeah, so we moved to the States in 97. I was but a child. And um, uh, we moved to the suburbs of Chicago and have pretty much, I mean, my parents are still in the suburbs of Chicago. So that's, that's pretty much my my own identity and why I try I think why I tried to seek myself in this movie and felt very um you know very disappointed that I was like oh the, the eldest daughter um she's not that interesting in the movie mm -hmm. but eldest daughters can be quite interesting I promise yeah. <laughs> no, but, I mean we there's so many clues to that through like scattered throughout the movie that you know the whole family's future feels so pinned to the son's well-being and the son's health and what the son's future is going to be and um you know one of the lines of dialogue that I wrote down early on in the movie is when the parents are quarreling over the father's somewhat I think like um ambitious possibly quixotic uh, sort of like an open question um how realistic it is this idea that he wants to build basically like he wants to build their fortune on a farm in Arkansas in the rural Ozarks that will supply Korean vegetables basically to all the Korean groceries in the Midwest <laughs> um and you know the mom says um to him well you know save some money for David and it's just so interesting, like all of these little moments that happen where you hear that the both that the children are used as sort of like weapons when the parents fight with one another, but also that it's usually like the son's future that is really thought of as like, well, you have to squirrel some of that money away for David. You can't, you know, like um, be so foolish to spend it all on this dream. And I guess like there, there's like the image that I feel like I did get of the daughter is that she's highly capable and you know basically a second mother to mm -hmm. David the young son the protagonist who we understand is sort of like the stand-in for the director mm -hmm. himself um but she's only she's such a young child like she's only a few years older than him would you what would you have said is she like eight or nine yeah she looks about eight or nine and David is around like six years old, I think. Um, and, you know, we don't have any sense of how her potential will be fulfilled outside of, you know. Yeah, or even her, her desires. Or what her desires are. Yeah, exactly. Like we just get a sense of how little of a childhood she gets to have. And yeah, I would say the same thing is true for the mother. Um, I don't know if that was the sense that both of you also got. Like the mother, we get a sense that she 
is also really capable. She really wants to improve as a chicken sexer. So she's not <laughs> as fast at figuring it out as her husband, but she really drives herself to become better at it. But we don't have any sense of like, you know, like this is clearly a person who has greater potential than the slot in life that she's been given. Um, and, you know, I was really left, I think that a large part of my reaction to the portrayal of women in this film, frankly, does have to do with the fact that I was watching it shortly after the Atlanta Asian spa shootings, mm. the murders of the, um, of the uh, Asian women, largely, mostly Asian women. And I remember, you know, like trying to, um, yeah, just sort of see what information I could find online, Google their names. And for some of them, there was quite a bit of information that was available, but for a couple of them, there was almost no information about mm -hmm. their lives. And it just really drove home, you know, these are people whose lives were really invisible in America. Um, and that's really how the mother and daughter, the mother and older sister character feel in this film too. Um, but I'm kind of curious what else you, either of you thought about their characters, what, why it is that we learn so little about them. Yeah, a lot of what you're saying is uh, bringing up this idea that um, the women in the movie are the ones who are committed to community or to a sense of collectivity. Um, the mother, it seems that her desire is to be back in California where there were more Koreans and there was a Korean church um, that she could feel belonging. And um, the daughter too, her sense of collectivity is just trying to keep the family together. <laughs> in the midst of shambles. Um, and so that, it, it almost seems that like, as they embedded themselves in whatever collective spaces they, you know, worked and lived in, they became, as, as you're saying, Tian Tian, like they become invisible because they become part of, you know, the fabric of everyday life, whereas, um, there is something made exceptional about the father's dream of a productive, literally productive land. Um, the son's dream of just being a son, <laughs> like a kid, and perhaps the dream of him having a healthy heart. It's, it's you know stated throughout the movie that he has a very unhealthy heart. He can't run. Um, yeah, actually, he has the same condition that I grew up with. Oh, a heart murmur. Um, oh. And I mean, I think that the way that it's portrayed in the movie, I mean, you know, I was obviously raised um, in a later generation. And so I think that medicine was better. Mm -hmm. um, for him, it seems like the, the, the only treatment is not medication, but surgery. Mm -hmm. or that's sort of like the thing that's hanging over the family. Um, but yeah, I, I do like, I did think about that because I remember the protectiveness and fear that my mother had around me while I was growing up um, mm. <laughs> around that particular condition also. What do you think the, the movie sort of says about gender as intersected with age or generation? 
because I'm just thinking of like how the daughter seems to be following in the footsteps of the mother as the kind of like background caretaker for the men in her life. But then the grandmother comes in as this like wild and free agent <laughs> who ends up being like the only one who bonds with and sees the son, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, I just wonder, and and like the, the like the zany grandmother who gets it and is like not an authority figure, but is like cool, is like <laughs> as much of an idealization as like the young, the, the mom and the daughter are, you know, like that's also like a fantasy that like those fantasies are interconnected. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense in the movie where like, you know, parenthood or parenting sort of skips a generation where the parents are sort of like seen to have failed sort of in their being there for the kids. And it sort of skips a generation to the grandmother who comes in as the one who can properly recognize them. But I wonder, yeah, I wonder about what you all think about that, like how like the, the, how the portrayal of the grandmother all like fits in with the portrayals of the mom and the, the older sister as part of like a piece of a kind of gender view. That's a good question, Dan. I mean, I think that for me, the, it made sense um, thinking about the way that my mother also raised me as a new immigrant in this country, um, that, you know, the way that love often expressed itself in terms of worry and in terms of like real fear over please don't run you know like please don't do the things that might might sort of like put your body at risk or might sort of like put anything about our status in this country at risk Mm -hmm. um that made sense as sort of something that I recognized in my mother too um and I think that I guess like even that formula about the the grandparent who is much looser and has less of that worry. So love is just able to come across as love or as humor instead of as worry. Um, I mean, that seemed like a pretty familiar cinematic trope to me, I guess. Like I was thinking mm-hmm. about, we also get that in Little Miss Sunshine. Um, Mulan. Other examples too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Where, you know, like um, it's all, it's usually someone played like by Alan Arkin or something who's able to just be like really coarse and to not have a filter in relating to children. And it's like um, a kind of American trope that mm-hmm. the grandparents always love the grandchildren mm-hmm. more than the parents ever mm-hmm. will. Anna, do you... Um... Do you have any relationship with your grandparents? Yeah, so actually- Are they zany and foul-mouthed like we <laughs> would expect from the movies? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> my grandfather is a little zany. But my, my grandmother actually moved to the States um, after we had sort of established ourselves here, after a couple of years of yeah. establishing ourselves in the States. So she came to live with us um, and take care of us while my parents both words um so that that part was familiar and I will Mm -hmm. say honestly one of the scenes that struck me like so like real was when the grandmother comes from Korea and brings the gochujang Mm. and the mother is crying because she's like Mm -hmm. smells the spice again and in a similar way, like when my grandmother came to the States, she brought 
you know, all these Filipino goodies. And I don't remember my mother crying necessarily, but we were really happy to like have, you know, the pickled green mangoes and the like dried anchovies or whatever. Um, so I think that scene uh, really struck me. And the fact that it was framed from like the son's perspective of kind of eavesdropping or he, he wasn't mm -hmm. supposed to be a witness to that scene. Um, I thought was very, yeah, I mean, it, it also kind of marked the audience as like, oh, you weren't supposed to see how earnest the mother could be or how real um, the grandmother could be outside of her zaniness. That's such an interesting framing of that moment because the way that the son tells that moment um, like why he avoids the grandmother for a while after she arrives is because right. mm -hmm. he says, oh, she smells like Korea. Yeah. So it's like the grandmother's strangeness, the grandmother standing in for like a whole place that he's that he's supposedly aversive to. But I love your idea that like, no, in that first scene that he witnesses them, he's actually like, he sees his mother sort of be vulnerable which right. is very interesting when you're used to a parental figure who's only worrying about you, right? It's right. sort of like, you're always seeing yourself as the vulnerable one, as the one who's about to crack. And then suddenly seeing that as a reversal or maybe seeing like the mother now with her mother. But yeah. I don't know, I love that idea that there might've been something more subliminal going on, that his reaction wasn't just to the grandmother's exoticism, but like to something that he saw in his mother for the first time. I love yeah. that too. I mean, I think that that scene stood out to me also because of the, I think that that scene was one of the ones that really reminded me of the way that other films um, depict childhood or sort of like the experience of um, a child's perspective. So just like the sensuousness of everyday objects and just mm -hmm. even like the quality of the light, I think is really one of the reasons why I'm really drawn to children's stories um, <laughs> and films that try to try to really like seriously consider what would the POV of a child be. Mm. Um, and, you know, like usually it's like, it kind of follows like a classical symmetrical narrative structure, but it involves building up a lot to like an emotion or a sensation or just like sort of inhabiting a body that is kind of ungainly. Um, in its movement, conveniently for narrative purposes, the child's heart murmur and his inability to run ends up being like that motivator in this particular film. But I was thinking about how uh, just how sensuously beautiful this movie is was something that really stayed with me um, in the way that, you know, I, I have never been to the Ozarks, but I would really love to go at some point after seeing this movie because we see such a like lush wildness um, to that environment. And I feel like it's really sort of like, because we, we're seeing so much of this story through David's eyes that it has that sense of like a wild forestiness. Um, but I think there also is, I think you're completely right about this, um, with Dan and Anna about how like there is this irony about films about children is that they're, those films are about exploring what we understand that the children also don't at any given moment. And I feel like a lot of the tension in specific scenes of this movie is like toggling between that tension of like realizing David thinks one thing is happening, but we, the older viewer, realize like another 
um, another much more complicated thing is actually also happening in that same scene. And I was curious if there were any, it's not exactly that David is like an unreliable narrator, but he's like a very limited narrator. Um, and the movie goes beyond what he's just able to see. So I wonder if there were any moments like that that were really striking to you or, or even how you sort of like understand the conflict between the parents, um, you know, with that in mind that we're supposed to be toggling both from what he sees and also what he is not able to fathom about the situation. Mm. One, one, this might not totally answer your question, James, so I'm sorry, but a scene that really, uh, uh, like, was really marked for me that centered on David was um, when they first went to the church, to the rural church, and the, he befriends a white boy. Right, right. Oh, but the white boy said something like, pretty racist to him oh he, the white boy says why is your face flat right right and David just says no it's not mm-hmm. and then they become friends <laughs> mm-hmm. and that always and th- that's paralleled by the sister having a similar experience right there's like a white little girl who um yeah. says, you know just like stop me when I say something in your language oh, right, right. <laughs> she starts like right. going on a nonsense ramble Right. It's like uh, a thousand little... monkeys on a thousand typewriters will eventually produce Korean. Right. <laughs> but then the little girl does say like, oh, there, there, that, that's a word. Right. As like this sort of weird, like, uh, okay. They're, they, they, the children both notice their own difference, but they're not quite, they don't quite know what to do with it. <laughs> Um, except to be like, oh, no, my face is not flat or be like, oh, yeah, that's like kind of a word, I guess. Um, but I, that just made me think of Tian Tian, what you were saying about like, um, we witness these children sort of, uh, you know, going through these very, um, I don't know, deep <laughs> instances and, and not know what they're going through, but we are supposed to sort of know what they're going through. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up for at least two reasons. So one of them is we we haven't really talked about Christianity in relation to this movie yet. Um, So I think that that's one avenue that we could go down. The other one is, um, yeah, I think it's really great to think about like, what do we make about this film's portrayal of racism? and of microaggressions as part of the Asian American experience. To me, those moments, um, those two like interactions that we see between the children, I, I have almost exactly those same experiences, you know, growing <laughs> up Chinese American in Ogden, Utah, which is a very homogenous, um, largely white community, or at least it was in the, in the 90s when I was growing up there. It's, you know, um, it's more diverse now as is the United States um, as a whole. But I think that for me, it just really, I, I liked that the aggression was sort of left at that level because it really paralleled my experiences from childhood where I was confused by a moment and I didn't know why I was confused. 
Um, and then later on, I understood what it was, but actually like just the idea that that sort of interaction is the kind of thing that stays with you. And it really kind of leaves a psychic scar, even if you don't at the time know how to interpret it. Um, it's something that you carry with you until later on, you know how to interpret it. Yeah, I, same. <laughs> Where I had um, almost an exact replica of the um, interaction between David and the young white boy where I was in school and somebody oh young white boy I was also young and white or, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it <laughs> no don't tell me who I'm from Sweden um uh but he was like oh why is your skin brown did you not take a shower today uh. I was like I do have the mark of Cain on you, Anna. <laughs> I was like, I did shower today. And then I made fun of him. And then we both got in trouble, actually. Um, but the teacher, she like didn't know what to make of what to do with us because like I made, you know, I made fun of him for being smelly or whatever. And she's just like nice. And I was like, but he told he said I was dirty because my skin is brown. And she was just like, uh you're both in trouble <laughs> and so that sort of thing yeah as you're saying Tian Tian, it's like those small microaggressions that you like you I'm sure uh Lee Isaac Chong am I saying his name right um that was probably something that he experienced at five and still remembers so he put it in the movie and like I experienced that same thing when I was six and, you know, it's still, I still remember every <laughs> detail of it. Um, I think that's such a strength of the movie that I really appreciate it is how subtle it's able to leave something like that. And to know, actually, it doesn't need to be like a, a large dramatic moral moment in order for it to um, resonate with the, with the audience that is experienced. Yeah. And it, it really kind of recasts the way that I, interpreted the white adults extreme niceness through the mm -hmm. movie like every white adult is like unfailingly kind and generous and understanding and tactful from what I can remember right but the fact that with the children they both start with like a microaggression and then the little boy is like oh by the way I'm James or whatever right and then and then he sounds like his parents like he he then switches over to the code of like southern politeness and hospitality or whatever that that helped me see the parents as not different from the kids but rather as having just filtered out that first sentence right, right? like from from childhood they have like the southern hospitality thing going on and then they like just like say the stuff that comes to mind and the adults have just filtered that first part out but it's not like 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 a substantive difference between the child and the adult you know yeah. um and and i think but then like my experience of like watching the movie was like every time like a white person showed up on screen i sort of like physically tightened right like you're sort of like waiting for the racist Oscar shoot a drop. Like, oh my God, mm -hmm. this is an Oscar Beatty mm -hmm. movie about race. There's going to be like some racist stuff if they really want that medal, you yeah. know? Like, it was such a um, pleasant surprise that that, you know, didn't come or it yeah. didn't come in the way that I was expecting. I think so. Um, I think that leads me to a question that I really wanted to have 
hear from both of you, which is basically like what surprised you most about this movie? And also like, what did you find completely unsurprising about this movie after having seen it? There, there were things that stood out to me, but I'm, I'm really curious if um, you might've had some different responses, so. Can I start with one unsurprising idea? Yes, please. So halfway through the movie, um, Victoria said, so this was at the point where they were starting to irrigate the farm that the dad is planting. Um, and halfway through the movie, Victoria was like, oh, the water's going to get shut. Is your, Victoria's your partner that you watch the film with. Yeah, but our listeners don't need to know that. Okay. <laughs> um, she's like, the, the water's going to get cut off and the plants are going to die. And all they're going to be left with is the Minari plants that the grandmother planted. That's good. <laughs> Which is just to say, like, it, in many ways, it was like a very predictable, like, narrative, like, art of an art movie. Um, yes. you know. well, not even of an art movie. Like, it's a very classic narrative structure. Yeah. 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 yeah I think the other, like, going along with unsurprising things, because we are so trained in and socialized in classic narrative structures uh, the sort of like father-son dynamics to me were very much like American dad film like American dad and son they overcome <laughs> yeah that actually reminded me of Parasite um, and I remember like when when I was watching Parasite I was really struck by how it started as this like class conflict between the family foursome mm -hmm. and and the rich family and at some point in the movie, like in the last third, it suddenly shifts into like a paternal melodrama. And it's yeah. like really just about the dad and son. And, and there was a similar way in this movie of like, you have the paternal melodrama, right? But then you have the like the family's relation to its environment and stuff. And it does feel like, like they, both movies swerve in that direction when they started out being about other things, right? Mm -hmm. Like the relationship to the land, you know, et cetera. Both of them. Sorry, I cut you both. off. Go on. No, I think that's me or Anna. Whoever. Both of us. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you brought up Parasite, I was just thinking also, you know, both of those movies have that subplot where they thematize like the idea of people who are doomed basically to live their lives invisibly, um, even in society. So, you know, in Parasite, that's like such a strong plot point is um, of the person who is hidden, who like lies, literally like lies below the family that is successful in the house versus um, in Minari. I mean, it's, it just feels like so strongly that is the thing that the father resists is he tells his wife, I can't like go on living. I can't go back with you to California where we're going to work ourselves to death, just sexing chickens the rest of our lives. Um, and, you know, like we really get the sense that what he needs is he needs to be seen and he needs to be visible in America. And I think like the, that was one of the things that um, I kind of found to be, I guess like I would say one of the things that I found to be most surprising about this movie does have to do with that. This is such a Christian movie and I wasn't necessarily expecting that, but this is, um, I think, you know, even like the 
ending of the movie, the movie ends in fire and with this sort of miracle of forgiveness, when it seems like we've actually reached an impasse in the plot where nothing good can happen anymore. And then suddenly this miracle of forgiveness happens, but it's from something terrible, um, which is the, you know, the crops catching on fire and them losing the fortune that they had been saving up. And there's something with the father that so strongly seems to follow the parable of the prodigal son, it seems like with him both like reaching for something more ambitious and grander and more exciting than his life and, you know, like just being accepted back into, um, into his family. I guess like the other thing that surprised me a lot about this movie, and I would be curious to hear um, your reactions to it. I was really surprised by the representation of Pentecostalism in this movie, um, who we get from the white farmhand who helps, you know, um, the family on their farm and who eventually performs an exorcism of their house. And just the way that um, the exoticism of Pentecostalism is provided as sort of like some exotic flavor in the movie. And I was thinking about this because, you know, Pentecostalism and that part of the culture of the Ozarks is really a part of whiteness, white American culture that's very othered from, you know, WASP, white Anglo-Saxon um, Protestant culture. It's like so much more expressive. It's not repressed. It's about letting the body be loose and free um, in a way that's just not what we normally see when we talk about white culture on screen. And yeah, I was curious if either of you had responses to that or just other thoughts about how Christian this movie is. And I'll give a little bit of background in saying that I am not um, a Christian um, Korean, which is, you know, like a very strong community, a very visible community of Asianness in America, but I was raised in the faith partially in the United States. So that's my sort of like, that's where I come to this movie from. Yeah, I really like this idea that um, if, if Asianness is not going to be the other category in this film, there has to be an other category that everyone can understand as exotic because even the father um, is weirded out by the Pentecostalism. Um, and it does not seem as... Um, taken with the faith as as the mother he actually yeah he makes fun of the mother and he yeah. like there's this part where he makes fun of like oh you believe in Jesus too you're just like him. yeah yeah <laughs> but I, I I will say I that farmhand the friendship that he brought to the family that was surprising to me like I was ready for, I was ready for him to say something very racist or to like turn around and betray the family and you know whatever but he remained very genuine there's a sense that like this they they never really encounter america in this movie like so much of the tension with america is with the soil and with the land and with fate you know it's like so much about i found the best soil in america and it's like not producing shit 
you know, mm-hmm. or then it's like, no matter how much you try to build up and like fill your stock house with butternut squash, America's always going to burn it down because it's like where dreams go to die or something. And there's this way in which, yeah, so there's this, I mean, Tianti and I wondered if like your reading of the Christianity of the movie, I, I think I, I interpreted that more as like the movie really proposes an alliance between immigrants and like rural Southern whites, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, and, and, and that, that alliance is sort of like, that remains steady throughout the movie. And so there's this way in which like the America, like if this is like, I remember there's one blurb that was like, this is like the most American film or some bullshit that like, um, like really pushes my buttons. Um, but like, curiously, they don't really- There's at least one poster for the movie is the little boy, um, you know, in front of an American flag, right? Mm-hmm, right. But do they really run into a lot of Americans is my question, right? Like it feels like they're in like a little pocket of land that like the white people that they meet are like super nice. And it's like, they have never, they don't really encounter their racialization in the form of sort of like a confrontation with culture other than those like couple of little moments with the kids, you know? Like most of the drama has to do with like the drama of seeds and planting and harvesting and loss, you know? I'm not sure that I agree with that, actually. I mean, I think that the way that the conflict with Americanness comes up is, um, like, we really see with the father how capitalism forces us to make these ethical decisions that we shouldn't have to be in the position to make, right? Or it feels like the way that we build up to a moral decision has so much to do with, like, the father buying into an ideal of capitalism and you know like his assimilation into that idea being a painful thing that breaks up his family um i feel like what is more american than the protestant ethic (laughs) yeah and i think you know like his his ambition his entrepreneurship his sense of not being satisfied with how his life was um i feel like all of that is brought to the forefront with that scene um that climactic scene, it's the deus ex machina moment where the barn where the vegetables have been stored catches on fire um, through this accident. And, you know, so much of the movie before then has been this like conflict within the father about, is he going to be there for his family or is he gonna be there for his farm? And for like these ideas about making this dream of making a lot of money off of the farm. And in that, I guess like in that climactic scene, it's just like, it's where those two tensions come to a head because we see that actually he does rush to the farm instead of like going to his children. He leaves his children and the grandmother like near the car, right? And he rushes in to like try to pull out as many vegetables as he can. And the wife helps him. The wife helps him and he's forgiven, yeah. And the grandmother's forgiven too, right? I mean, that's the sort of like Christian mm-hmm. repentance scene that you're talking about where like the grandma starts to walk away from, so the grandma is the cause of the burning barn because she was like, I think she was burning trash in the yard or something and it sort and it catches. Um, yeah. And and that, that there was a, like a lot of pathos in that for me when she like is walking away and she, I think she had also had a stroke or something like at yeah. some point in the movie. Mm-hmm. And you could tell that she was just feeling like 
a burden and like not useful to the family. And then she sets the barn on fire accidentally and she's walking away. And then the kids go and they're like, no grandma, like come back, you're walking in the wrong direction, right? Um, and so they're again, like the parents are left out of that scene of sort of like the healing of this idea of being a burden and carrying guilt as a badge of membership in a family. I had um, another question for both of you and, and feel free not to answer it if it's not one that interests you, but I, I was thinking, how does this movie make you think differently about Asian or about racial melancholia, if it does? To me, the father is a deeply melancholic figure. And I was kind of curious if he, um, spoke to you on that same register or if the mother spoke to you on that register or if you feel like you learned something new about how to think about Asian melancholia after watching this movie. You know, I feel like what stuck with me um, was the, you know, I was, I was saying before, like you, it, in a Hollywood movie where there's like, racial encounter you're like always waiting for the other shoe to drop right you're always waiting for like the racist incursion to come in and show that the pretense of friendship was always a lie or whatever and the fact that it never happened in this movie other than with the kids meant that I was like constantly sort of holding my breath for an explosion that never came and I actually thought that that was kind of like what was sort of interesting to me about the movie um, and then they set a barn on fire and then they like totally like <laughs> threw that away. But like until they set the barn on fire, I was like, oh, that's like kind of like that's that's really interesting that the movie would go that way. That like the first thing that you expect in this movie is like racist white people. And the fact that the movie actually like goes out of its way to make mm -hmm. the white people just like so loving and accepting and generous like all the way through. But the, the experience of watching the movie was nevertheless incredibly tense. And I thought that that was something that the movie was going for, right? This like really sublimated tension. The, the other thing that I think, I, I don't think this is about melancholy, but it's sort of come out of our conversation about like the father's need to be visible and productive. And this, and, but it's like the, 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 the the paternal line, the father and the son, like they need to be both productive and reproductive. Like reproduction mm -hmm. happens through that line. And I was thinking about like that scene where they take the son in to get an um, ultrasound of his heart. Yes. And it looks so much like a fetal ultrasound, yes. right? It's like they take the son in and then you see the like little pulsating heartbeat on the ultrasound monitor. And it's like, oh, reproduction happens through the son too. Yes. Right. Like, like what you're saying about like the son holding the future of the family is sort of like, like depicted through that image of the ultrasound. And you remember what the father is doing in that scene? He's cradling like a box of vegetables, <laughs> which like he's come in late. Because yeah. He's like, yeah, he's at that moment chosen the well-being of the farm. And they're both like really fragile boxes holding really fragile contents. Right. Yeah. Like the vegetable box and the sun. So I, I guess like this is something that I also, this is sort of like a less um, deep question, but I feel like it's one that I'm really curious about. I am not sure how all of us feel about this movie, 
Um, I guess like I'll go ahead and say that I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I saw it and I felt really deeply moved by it, even while feeling unsatisfied um, at some of the ways that it, you know, was so sort of like tightly hewn to this classical narrative structure and allowed very little experimentation outside of that. Um, but I guess, you know, the question is just like, did you like this movie? Do you feel like, and I kind of got this hint maybe from Anna that you, you actually didn't like this movie. Um, yeah, so just any thoughts sort of like at a personal enjoyment, entertainment, intellectual level um, in terms of how you feel towards this movie? Yeah, well, I think, I think timing has maybe a bit to do with my attachment to the movie. I watched the movie before um, the news came out about the Atlanta spa shootings. And so um, I was sort of watching it when Asianness was not in the mainstream the way that it is today, April 9, 2021, right? Well, even um, though this whole, this whole pandemic has been about right asian hatred and i feel like that's what the the spa shootings um reminded all of us of exactly um and i also watched <laughs> okay maybe this shouldn't go in the pot so let me just we'll, we'll edit it out <laughs> I also just kidding watched... we won't <laughs> <laughs> i also watched it with my uh previous landlady housemate who had I, the reason I had to move out was because her microaggressions were getting so oh. like bananas, like unruly. Like I couldn't, I couldn't feel like safe in that house mm. anymore. I'm, sorry. Um, I'm so sorry. Oh yeah. Well, I'm in my new place now. Woohoo! Yeah. Um, Yay. But she, she was like, oh, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to buy it. And I was like, yeah, I might as well just watch it with you because then I don't have to pay $20. <laughs> um, and so when I was watching it, you know, there, I mean, there are definitely things that I enjoyed, um, but I was so nervous about like what Asian story is going to come up that I'm going to have to explain or what like microaggression is going to come up that I'm going to have to endure after this. But the whole time I was like, can I, do, do I enjoy this movie? Um, but yeah, I, I will say, I think I, I didn't dislike it. Let's say that. Um, I think that in some ways I tried to see myself a little too much in the movie because there are so many, um, resonances that I was like oh yeah like we moved to the states and then grandma came to live with us and the family structure was exactly the same too um that I was I think because there are so few films about Asian families in general um I was just like well this this kind of film is not going to come up again so let's see if I can see myself in this um, and to be like, oh, you still can't see yourself in this was, um, I think in general, kind of disappointing for me on a very, very, very personal level. <laughs> but in terms of like a, you know, cultural level, I think it's, I think it's nice that this kind of movie exists because it is such a like classic narrative and a classic sort of American narrative that just happens to be half 
in Korean language. <laughs> um, and I think that's, that, that has, you know, cultural clout in and of itself. And I was wondering when you said like, you were like trying to see yourself in it, which I, I totally get that as an impulse and like not being able to, I was wondering if you think that there could in fact be a movie, an American movie that you feel like you could see yourself in, or if just by the fact that it's an American movie, that that would not be possible. And the, the reason I'm asking that is because like one of my reactions to the movie was just the fact that it was a movie. And it made me realize like my whole relationship to the movies is to go and see like cultural forms that are not mine, right? Like what I've always gone to the movies for my whole life is to watch white people do stuff and like occasionally black people do stuff, right? Like it was always the movie of like the life that was not mine. And like for the first little part of the movie, when it, there was like, there were like Asian people on screen. I was like, why am I watching this? Like, this is not, this is not doing for me. Like why I go to the movies, right? And then like, I think like things sort of like toned down and settled or whatever, but I, yeah, but I just like, I think there's this certain like relation to the representation itself when like you're a minority that like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just wonder, or like, would it, would it have the same effect as like, like white movies that you loved as a kid or something, or fundamentally does the whole idea of representation and like the way you think of yourself and your memories, do those just like not intersect in, in a plane somewhere? Yeah, that's so interesting. My first response is like, um, a movie that I could <laughs> relate to will have to just like be my life story or something. <laughs> It'll be like, you know, the immigrant story of late 90s Filipino kids moving to the States because of Y2K. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great spec script. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, it, I, I agree with you where it's like, oh, I'm not used to <laughs> watching a movie and being like, oh, I could, I could see myself in this. And then... Um, to be like, oh wait, still no. I think I, I have a slightly different response to that question. So, um, and this was a, a link that I sent both of you earlier in the day. Um, so uh, there's an artist named Kyoko um, Takanaka and she made this short film called Home. Um, this was a couple years ago. I think that that movie, even though, so she's a Japanese American artist um, with, a very different trajectory than my life has gone. But I think that she captures so vividly in this short film, Home, the experience of being made to like, see yourself through someone's eyes who doesn't really see you. Um, and I think that that is like the, like visceral impact of, um, I don't know, when I think about the movie where I feel like I, see myself most clearly on screen, even through someone else's experience, um, like the affective level of seeing my own experience represented, I, I think of that short film. And that film, by the way, um, for people that aren't familiar with it, Kyoko basically, she recorded, um, uh, at least like the middle part of the movie is 
made up of recordings um, from white American men talking to her in bars, approaching her and trying to like flirt with her and saying different, um, basically just really racist things to her in a sort of like flirtatious, friendly, collegial way. And it's sort of like her responses to that, her sort of like trying to make jokes where she's able to and just trying to like live within that moment. Um, and this film, you know, like it strings a bunch of those together along with like just her sort of like very sort of like deadpan affect as she receives all of this abuse basically. Um, so that would be one example I think that comes to mind I think that another example that comes to mind is um, like I was saying, just like the experience of the children in this movie where they hear things that they don't quite understand but that stay with them. So I think like so much of an experience I felt like I was able to relate to. Dan, do you, I would be curious what your answer to that question is. Um, like seven out of 10? Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, this is gonna be like a very boomery thing to say, um, but like, there was just like nothing visually interesting about this film, man. Like, it, it felt like like made for TV filmmaking, you know? Like, I felt like like I mean, this is what you were saying about. Well, you were saying Tian Tian something about like, um, like the the narrative arc being really sort of predictable. Mm -hmm. um but also there's like the I I felt like there were and and also like that there wasn't room for experimentation so I think I mm -hmm. I felt that very much too right like there was just like there were no risks being taken visually or um right like it, it was sort of like that the old line about television being illustrated radio like it was basically that and I felt like perspectively it was super confused I felt like it didn't really sort of establish anything it wasn't really like bold at the beginning. Um, yeah, but I, I would want to know like, and I'll, so I'll, I'm, I'm the reason I'm sort of like, um, uh, like spinning my wheels right now is I'm also trying to think if there is anything else that I have to say, but I'm not sure yet. So like, while I do that, um, do you, so you said that you've been, you found that you're at, you've actually been thinking about the movie a lot since you watched it. And I was wondering if you had, you feel like you'd had the chance to say, everything that you think has been sticking with you in your mind or if there's other stuff that you haven't said yet? I was thinking, I was thinking about this movie in relation to another film about childhood that I love and that I think um, just has a lot more freedom to take risks. And that's a movie that, um, Dan, I know you've also seen. Anna, I'm curious if you've seen Sean Baker's The Florida Project. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a really beautiful, very shocking and sad, but also like um, joyous movie about a six-year-old girl growing up with her um, very, very working class mother in basically um, a long stay hotel um, in Florida in like the shadow of Disneyland and of like how the child makes sense of what their life is while we know that actually there's a much more difficult reality that's actually happening in all of the scenes um, 
that we see her having adventures in. And I was thinking about this movie partly because um, I think that the adventures are so much harsher in the Florida Project. And I imagine that some of those adventures were harsher also in um, Lee Isaac Chung's life. And I feel like we didn't get to see that part of the story. I mean, I know that, you know, even in my own life, there were the sort of microaggressions that I mentioned. And then there were much more severe, serious issues of racism that happened to me and my mother growing up. Um, and, you know, I felt like this was very much the film that felt like it was a middle-aged man looking back on his childhood and remembering select moments. And I wasn't sure that those were always um, the most sort of accurate or insightful moments that he was choosing. Like I felt like just so much about the story, even about his sister's exclusion, even about his mother's invisibility, about his father's deep depressive rage that we see um, were not being told. And we're sort of like only implied as interesting themes on the sidelines of the movie, but that the movie wasn't able to say. That's I guess something that came to mind Another movie that I have been thinking about again um, that I haven't seen since watching Lunari that I'd like to see again is Richard Linklater's Boyhood, mm. which is very much, you know, like a very ambitious in that case movie about um, a white boy's coming of age. But I think that movie plays around much more explicitly with memory in that, you know, there are actually scenes that we see that the laters talk, the characters talk about later on that they remember differently. And so, you know, that's like a movie where the, the fragility of memory, especially memories of family, um, the memories that families hold on to about childhood and adolescence are like really sort of in process even as they're, and being forgotten even as they're being talked about. So those were sort of like other directions that I felt like upon reflection, I wanted this movie to go in more. But on sort of like a positive note, I mean, I think that we, we always think about the movies that we watch in relation to the lives that we're leading and the things that are happening to us. And, um, you know, I have, I'll just be frank and say that I have been watching a lot of the videos of attacks on elderly Asians that have been happening in um, Chinatowns and in different cities around the US recently. And those videos are really hard to watch and I think that part of the reason why I found Minari so moving is, you know, like the grandmother in this movie looks so much like some of those elderly Asians that have been attacked. And um, of course, you know, Asian cultures do have this strong sense of tenderness and respect for um, our grandparents. And so I was just thinking about how, how important the grandmother is as the glue to this family and how sort of, um, yeah, just open with love she's able to be and how sort of like great it is when your grandparents are able to give you that. And so that's like the things in, in my life that I've been thinking about on reflection of this movie. Anna, as our esteemed guest, um, are there any other thoughts that you've been sitting on about the movie or anything tangentially related to it that um, yeah, you Yeah, it's, it's um, 
it's interesting that Tian Tian, you went in a sort of like American film direction because I went to a Korean film direction. And mm. I don't actually, I don't have a lot of Korean films under my belt, but it made me, um, and this also goes back to Dan's point about the perspectives being kind of mismatched and also confusing and not, in, and visually uninteresting. Um, it, it started off kind of like that slow, sleepy haze that I was used to watching in um, Burning, which Steven Yun has also starred in, mm-hmm. and um, Secret Sunshine, which features a mother, mother-son relationship. Um, a mother moves from Seoul after her husband dies. And then her son, her son goes missing. Um, but anyway, the the tones of those Korean films to me had always had this like stillness that was that had a lot of energy underneath it, a lot of tension underneath it, despite its stillness. And at first, the uh, Minari had that sort of stillness, and I was like, "Oh, cool!" There's like he is a Korean American filmmaker. And then it sort of merged into a very American film. And so in some ways I was like, oh yes, this is like a hyphenated film. (laughs) It is a Korean hyphen American (laughs) film um, in that uh, it was trying to encapsulate essences of of both maybe film traditions. And so that that was the only uh, tangent that I was thinking about that I thought I could bring in. <laughs> that actually it's a, um, it's makes a lot me... of MAGA lighting. <laughs> maybe a little too much MAGA lighting, maybe a little bit too much like MAGA music. It's a new um, dawn I, for I, America. I, Across I, the cornfields, yeah. farmers are hard at work. Maybe it's just because the father is regrettably wearing a red trucker hat. That's yeah, like I thought that was like familiar. a it was a that was definitely a conscious choice yeah and i i think it's i found it so interesting that you pointed to like a korean style like and like look no one is citing this podcast so we can make wild claims about like national cinematic style and no one's gonna like check up on us right but i love that idea of like those movies you mentioned like th- that were more korean and sort of like just affect as sort of like 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 energy under the surface and that the Hollywood movie sort of settles into a kind of like explicitness or like, yeah. and I was actually thinking about that when Tian Tian brought up Sean Baker, because what I, mm. I realized like something that also bothered me about Minari that is different in Sean Baker's movies like Florida Project and also Tangerine. Um, I don't know if you've seen Tangerine, mm. Anna, but it's also mm-hmm. awesome. You should check it out. Um, but like, so in, in Sean Baker's movies, um, there's like a very, very strong allegorical register. Yeah. So like the, the, the motel in the, sh- the literal shadow of Disney World, mm-hmm. right? Or Tangerine being like a parable of Cinderella. Mm-hmm. But in stark contrast to the actual like language of the filmmaking itself, which is like highly improvisatory, highly like messy and disorganized and sort of like, raw feeling and I realized like Minari is both highly allegorical in its like outside register and highly allegorical in its like explicit filmmaking language like both are extremely processed right and so you don't have that like that tension of like allegory and realism 
that you get in something like another movie with like a similar kind of premise, like the Florida project. That's such a, that's really such a helpful, I think, um, analysis of how this movie is different from, say, a filmmaker like Sean Baker's Dan. I really like that a lot. And it makes sense um, if we sort of like apply a sort of quasi-psychoanalytic reading of this as like a man's selective memory of the past, right? That it sort of reduces the complexity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was wondering, should we end with some poetry? Always. I know we wrote some Always. I think. Um, I'm very excited. Guess, would you like to go first? Yes. Well, I was going to say, would you oh. like to go first or would you like to go last? I can go first. Okay. That's fine. Um, okay. Here is my Yanari haiku Arkansas summer, burned out Korean veggies, all American. <laughs> I, I love that. <sighs> That's great. Um, Tian Tian, do you want to go last? I'll go next, and then you can close us out. Okay, sure. Or, or do you want to go next? No, I want you to go next. Okay, here's mine. Uh-oh. Okay, here it is. Does a yellow chick get sorted as blue or white if ding-dong broken? <laughs> <laughs> Watch the movie, you'll get the reference. <laughs> Um, and my haiku is assimilation might just look like learning to love what will perish. And I wrote that um, again because I grew up with a heart murmur and I feel like a lot of the process of becoming an American family was my mother actually learning to be less protective of my heart condition and knowing that um, Fragility of life is inevitable, whether you're an old grandmother or a young boy. And um, that place and moment in time and the transience of an era is, yeah, all just part of what it means to be American. So beautiful, Tian Tian. <laughs> so beautiful. That's what she does. <laughs> well, um, Anna, thank you so much for joining us as our inaugural forever inaugural guest thank you for having me thank you're you for welcome back anytime us, yes thank you for watching next, film time, with us. next time we have you back we'll talk about basketball oh yes yes yes, yes. yes. there is some backstory which we will not spoil here but there is uh there's some exciting stuff that we i would really like to dive into so <laughs> if, if you'd like to come back anna you're you're very welcome it has to be with a very paired with a very good film so i'm ready okay you want to come back on space jam 2 <laughs> wowie well we'll, wow. we'll talk about it our, our people will contact your people okay all right that's a big one we should have a whole panel for space mm, jam 2 yes do you think tom gunning would come to comment um, on i the... think that i think Friends, that our beloved patrick would like to come. be on this panel <laughs> Okay, well, we'll assemble some like experts and quasi experts. <laughs> All right, y'all. Thanks for watching film with me. Take care. Thank you.